daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Coming up, Joe Biden issues executive order restricting U.S. tech investment in China. What does this mean for the interconnected global tech industry? Former Japanese Prime Minister Taro Aso made a provocative visit to China's Taiwan region. What could be the underlying agenda? A presidential candidate in Ecuador has been shot dead during a campaign rally. We delve deeper into the surge in crime and violence in the country. China resumes group tours to the U.S., Japan, and other key markets. How will this contribute to the recovery of the global tourism industry? China has called a new U.S. ban on tech investment, economic coercion, and technological bullying. The foreign ministry says the U.S. act damages the international trade order and disrupts the global supply chains. The ministry urges the U.S. to create a sound environment for China-U.S. economic and trade cooperation. China's commerce ministry has also slammed the U.S. ban, saying the restriction is an act of decoupling and cutting supply chains under the excuse of de-risking. U.S. President Joe Biden earlier signed an executive order to ban certain U.S. investments in Chinese entities in semiconductors and microelectronics, quantum information technologies, and some artificial intelligence systems. For more, we are now joined by Harvey Zoden, former vice president of ABC TV Network and senior fellow of the Center for China and Globalization. Harvey, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So the Biden administration says the move is primarily driven by national security concerns rather than economic interests. However, when we examine the wide range of sectors that this order encompasses, such as advanced computer chips, microelectronics, quantum information technologies, artificial intelligence, do you believe that the scope truly aligns with its national security rationale? I don't think so at all. You know, the Biden administration continues to slice the sausage cut by cut uh, with yesterday's action, which definitely, in my view, won't be the last slice. With an election coming up in 452 days and the first Republican presidential debate less than two weeks from now, in the U.S., this is all about politics and who can demonize China the most. As part of this strategy, the White House has done a rebranding for domestic purposes, and the White House no longer refers to interactions with China as foreign relations, but as matters of national security. I would say it's national insecurity. Uh, And they're doing so in hopes of attracting more independent voters for Biden, who's now polling very, very badly. But to me, this is nothing more than a thinly veiled attempt to contain China, to reverse China's remarkable rise since reform and opening up, because it touches on the very elements that are crucial to competing in today's high tech world and tomorrow's. Yes. So the U.S. says the order seeks to blunt China's ability to use U.S. investments in its technology companies while also preserving broader levels of trade that are vital for both nations' economies. How do you look at this? And do you think the U.S. is trying to strike a delicate balance there? 
Or do you perceive the U.S. approach as essentially moving towards a form of decoupling between the two economies? There's no delicate balance here, but it's a continual slicing with a sharpened U.S. meat cleaver. It's strategic decoupling that's aimed at crippling China's economic advancement. It's a very strategic time that China's economy is facing strong headwinds. And the timing itself is no accident either. The White House announcement was made exactly one year after the passage of the Chips and Science Act that not only provides billions for companies to help the U.S. compete better with China, but also restricted companies from giving China access to advanced microchips needed in order for China to be competitive in these very important fields. Yes, and as we know, China has been provocatively advancing in emerging technologies and fostering innovation. So in light of the U.S. executive order, how do you foresee the potential impact on China's technology sector and the broader innovation ecosystems that China is striving to cultivate? Uh, Yeah, China's made incredible strides in innovation and advancing emerging technologies. I believe that stopping China's advances in their tracks is exactly what the latest U.S. action is focused upon. And uh, so have many of the other actions by the U.S. and its allies. The U.S. claims that it's performing precise surgery to prevent China using Western technology for dual civilian and military purposes. But Biden's action is taking a blunt meat cleaver to cripple China's technological development across the board. Biden's people have talked about small yard, high fence restrictions. They're nothing of the sort. It's more like gigantic yard, sky high fence. Because I can assure you that this won't stop here. Many members of Congress, uh, Democrats and Republicans, have already criticized Biden's efforts yesterday as being too weak. And since the Treasury Department that's going to take the lead in drafting the specific regulations has announced a 45-day comment period, you can bet the pressure is going to be on to further restrict not only direct investment, but passive investment, such as merely buying, let's say, Chinese high-tech and other Chinese stocks. So let's face it, even screwdrivers or wrenches can be dual use. And with the election season starting in a few weeks, There's going to be hearings and pressures directed at broadening Biden's order. And the White House and the Treasury Secretary Yellen are going to be under intense political pressure to broaden the executive order when drafting the regulation. And there's no telling just how low they're going to be forced to go. Okay, so how big of a blow could this be to China's tech industry? I think uh, that it is a a short-run, long-run situation. In the short run, yes, it will uh, harm China's tech uh, industries. But I believe in the middle and long-term run that it's going to make China stronger because China uh, always follows the uh, saying, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Just look at Huawei when they were placed under these severe uh, restrictions by the CHIP Act last year. um, They were able to uh, repurpose their uh, business and are now uh, competing successfully again. And 
China is in the process of developing its own uh, very small uh, computer chips, micro computer chips, down down to the five, six, seven uh, nanometers. And so I think that what this action of the U.S. has done is actually in the long run to spur China on to be self-sufficient at the same time still engaging in international trade where it can and should be doing that. Okay, and then what implications could this have on the broader global supply chain, um, considering how intricately interconnected the technology production and distribution networks are? Um, I think, it again, it depends on the final order and how much it's beefed up under expected intense political pressure. It's probable that the order is going to adversely uh, affect a lot of things. Uh, and I think that it's very sad because we need to have more international uh, cooperation if we're going to uh, survive some of the uh, existential challenges that we face, like deteriorating environment, global public health. So I think Biden's move is the wrong action at the wrong time. And unfortunately, it's not only China who's going to be adversely affected, but every country, every person on our planet and and that include American companies, right? So how do you think this can affect um, American companies, um, their ability to access Chinese markets and, and maybe participate in China's rapidly growing tech industry? And, and maybe uh, this may stifle innovation and, and collaboration in the tech sector. Uh, it kind of reminds me of the saying to cut off your nose to spite your face. So I think it's going to adversely affect American industries, especially in the tech uh, field, uh, very, very strongly because they're not going to be able to collaborate with China. They're not going to be able to uh, make a synergy, a synergy where one plus one equals three or more, uh, which is what we're talking about here. So um, this is a proposition of America believing that they can go it alone with their allies and uh, demonize China and uh, actually reverse China's progress. And I don't think that that's going to happen. And I think uh, that this is going to be to the detriment of American companies. You know, in the, the last few weeks, both the Chinese and the U.S. Uh, semiconductor industry have both come out with the same proposition. And that is that all these actions by the Biden administration are going to harm both sides a lot. And so, uh, again, it's a case of cutting off your face, to, uh, your nose to spite your face. And amid the backdrop of a globalized economy, do measures such as export controls and investment restrictions conflict with the U.S. Um, established commitment to promoting free trade and open markets? Yeah, look, free is free. Open is open. So restrictions like these and the ones China could put in place as a result uh, will adversely affect free trade and open markets. But who's going to be adversely affected the most? China's joined RACEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. It's the world's largest free trade agreement. And they've applied for membership in the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership, both of which President Trump walked away from. 
again, I think the U.S. could be putting itself in a very vulnerable position and is uh, well overplaying its hand. Okay, so how do you think China is is going to respond? Because as we know, China passes its foreign relations law earlier this year. So does that um, sort of provide a legal framework to respond to external pressures like this? The the new foreign relations law uh, took effect on July 1, so it's very new. But for the first time, it's a law that does codify and expand on China's relations with other countries. And it definitely provides a legal framework for China's foreign policy activities, but it also provides safeguards to ensure China's national security, its sovereignty, and its development. And woven throughout the law is the emphasis uh, on something that we shouldn't forget, that China is a great power. And it's also a builder of a community of shared future for mankind. One of the law's main elements is that it specifically authorizes China to take countermeasures against any actions by foreign actors that harms China's interest or that violate international law. So the new law balances the concepts uh, of struggle with uh, cooperation. But clearly, the law arose because of the hostile U.S. and Western actions, economic and otherwise, that were begun by Trump and continued and enhanced by Biden administration, including yesterday's restrictions. Mm -hmm. Well, historically, economic interdependence has been regarded as the cornerstone of China-U.S. relations. So given the present geopolitical landscape, do you think it's still viable to depend on economic ties as the primary pillar upholding the foundation of China-U.S. relations? Uh, It's so hard to tell where the current race to the bottom is going to lead, and it is a race to the bottom. Um, The international order has really been well served by China's participation in the WTO, its uh, growth into the world's second largest economy. But trade hasn't been zero sum, but win-win. The U.S. is pushing decoupling with China. I just don't see how this orientation will benefit the U.S., its allies, or the community of nations. At the moment and in the future, we're just too interconnected and interdependent to go back to uh, earlier outmoded trade models. Mm -hmm. So the U.S. and China owe it to themselves and to all nations to cooperate where they can, not to decouple or create conditions that uh, could lead to a final civilization-ending hot war. Thank you, Harvey Zoden, former vice president of ABC TV Network and senior fellow of the Center for China and Globalization. This is World Today. Stay with us. This is World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. China has strongly condemned former Japanese Prime Minister Taro Aso's visit to the Taiwan region and his irresponsible remarks aimed at hyping up cross-strait tensions. During his provocative visit to Taiwan, Aso delivered a speech advocating a posture of strong deterrence and a readiness to fight. China's foreign ministry said such an act stokes antagonism and confrontation and seriously violates the One China principle and the spirit of four political documents between China and Japan. China urged Japan to deeply reflect on its history and aggression, stop meddling in China's internal affairs, and refrain from lending support to the separatist forces in Taiwan in any form. For more, we are now joined on the line by Liu Kuangyu, researcher at Institute of Taiwan Studies at Chinese Academy of Social Science. Uh, Professor Liu, thanks for joining us. 
Thank you. Um, so how would you characterize Tyro Ossel's visit to Taiwan and, and how would you assess the potential implications for such a provocative move on the already delicate China-Japan relations? Yeah. Uh, we, as we know, uh, for some time now, some right-wing politicians in Japan have been following the anti-China forces in the United States, linking up with Taiwan independence separatists, openly uh, making an appropriate, an appropriate Taiwan-related remarks. Uh, frequently taking wrong actions and constantly taking uh, political and security risks, which has posed severe challenges to the China-Japan relations. And we see that Mr. Uh, Aso famously outspoken is the latest wave of this undercurrent. And Aso is the highest-ranking Japanese politician to visit Taiwan in the past half-century. Also, uh, he is known for his uh, pro-Taiwan stance in Japan, and he became the leader of the pro-Taiwan forces after the assassination against uh, former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. His statement during in Taiwan also set several most records. First, we see that uh, abetting Taiwan authorities to reject reunification with military force and seek independence with foreign forces, which is the most blatant uh, incitement. And second, the Japanese conservative politicians desire to reinvade Taiwan. This is the most naked, uh, naked exposure. And third, these, the Japanese conservative politicians to pro, uh, politicians' uh, provocations on Taiwan question and their interference to China's in, internal affairs, and these are the most flagrant uh, provocations. And so we see that Chinese foreign ministry spokesman has hit nail on the head by saying that he overplays his power and speaks nonsense. Um, so in, ignoring China's firm opposition, uh, some Japanese politicians insist on visiting Taiwan region of China and making outrageous remarks, pulling up tensions across the Taiwan Strait uh, and, and grossly interfering China's internal affairs. These actions have seriously violated the one China principle and the spirit of four political documents between China and Japan. And this has become the biggest risk and challenges to the current Sino and Japan relations. Yeah, and, and Taro also said that there should be no war in the region, including the Taiwan Straits. Yet he also called for a posture of deterrence and a readiness to fight. So how, how do you interpret this apparent contradiction in his message and how might that impact cross-rate relations? Well, in my opinion, Aso's speech is not that contradictory. On the surface, his logic is that Taiwan must have the, uh, the readiness or the consciousness and preparation for war in order to deter the occurrence of war through deterrence. What he really meant was that in order to secure the peace and interests of Japan, the people of Taiwan must be prepared to fight and even die for it. And this contains two meanings. On the one hand, implies that if Taiwan wants to, the Taiwan authorities wants to attract Japan to intervene in Taiwan Strait Affairs, then Taiwan itself must make sacrifice first and that is the role division or the responsibility arrangement for the Taiwan Strait confrontation uh, potential. On the other hand, by encouraging Taiwan to use military force to reject reunification, seek independence, and then create division and civil unrest in China, Asso believes that might be the ultimate way. Uh, he indicates that might be the ultimate way to achieve Japan's security interests. There's no doubt it's extremely dangerous remarks will not only send a very wrong signal to Taiwan's independence uh, separate force in the, on the island, but also further introduce the haze of war and seas of conflict to the Taiwan Strait, uh, marking that Japan as dangerous and ambitious foreign power, uh, another player, is tearing off these guys to set up involvement in Taiwan Strait affairs, are bringing up more fears and frightening storms uh, into the Taiwan Strait. 
Um, so the ambition of um, the, Japan's military ambition, perhaps, yes. could that be the underlying motivations that's driving um, Taro Aso's visit to Taiwan? Yes, it might be. It should be first, uh, the first foremost, the Taiwan, we, we see there is a Taiwan complex or Taiwan sentiment that's been lingering in the subconsciousness of Japanese, uh, Japanese politicians. We know uh, that after Japan's defeat in accordance with the provision of character creation and pro-stand pro proclamation, uh, proclamation, Japan ended its co uh, colonial role over Taiwan, but Taiwan is the first colony seized by uh, Japan after the Meiji Restoration. It, so it's seen uh, by Japan as the symbol of its accession uh, to the ranks of great powers So uh, through military uh, methods. So with rapid rise of Japan from the ruins of defeat, some uh, conservative uh, politicians they are uh, again obsessed with with the so with so-called glorious history of the former empire. Begin to regard Taiwan as their backyard and make deliberate plans to reenter Taiwan. And secondly, we see that Abe was assassinated a year ago. The largest faction of the Liberal Democratic Party, the Abe faction, has not been able to elect new president. And uh, uh, so the pro-Taiwan faction of Japanese politics also. Uh, have lost the leading figures. So, so the right wing to speak and to influence uh, is significantly weakened. So also, uh, at this time, his visit to Taiwan obviously um, brushed the sense of extent uh, with string remarks to, to try to unite deep consideration of pro-Taiwan forces of Japanese politics. Well, Japan has recently released its latest defense white paper in which China is described as the greatest strategic challenge. And also the white paper suggests a breaking away from the defense-only policy and a potential departure from the pacifist constitution. So how would you interpret this um, shift in Japan's defense strategy and what impact might it have on regional peace and stability? Yes, for years, the Japanese right wing openly hypes up these arguments in order to influence Japan, Japan's strategic and security policies until the constitutional amendment. Um, the right wing forces represented by the chief advisor, former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, have always regarded Japan's uh, pacifist constitution as the surrender policy, so-called, and, uh, and that, that prevents Japan from moving uh, toward for, for a normal country and the so-called something in Taiwan I mean, the emergency, some, uh, the, some emergency in Taiwan means emergency in Japan that has become an important tool for, for the right wing to promote the loosening of the national uh, normalization law. And starting from the comprehensive view of Japan's three security doc documents, uh, we see the Japanese right wing demanded that the Taiwan, uh, Taiwan's value must be emphasized, highlighting the, uh, that even if even there, uh, even if there is a U.S.-Japan security treaty, the, the alliance is and the U.S.-Japan joint defense plan is, must be accelerated. Uh, Japan's decision to enter the war is also faced with the restrictions of legal system and anti-war public opinion domestically. So it's necessary to deliberately create the China threat theory to, uh, to repeat its story, as well, as well as Japan's concerns and interests over the Taiwan Strait and even its so-called responsibility. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, earlier this year, um, Fumio Kishida has announced a plan to promote what he called an open and free Indo-Pacific and promising 75 billion U.S. dollars in investment to help economies across the region. So very briefly, how do you look at such moves? Uh, well, the Indo-Pacific new plan exposes Japan's more ambitious political power to plan it, uh, to pl uh, and contain China's consideration. And there is no shortage of geoeconomic impact. It's 
uh, expanded maritime and air security cooperation and coordinated use of foreign aid will be the next focus of Japan's efforts if it continues to intensify and security game against and geopolitical confrontation, the great change might increase uh, chaos. Uh, the new plan was advertised by Japanese media as a highlight of Kishida's visit in India and received widespread attention from uh, the international community with cooperation between the United States, Japan, India, and Australia as so-called Quad as the cornerstone that Japan has vigorously attracted developing countries in the Indo-Pacific to jointly promote this strategy and aligned strategy in, in a broader uh, mm-hmm. so-called global south. And Japan is no longer satisfied with just being an economic power. Yes, thank you, Dr. Liu Kuangyu, researcher at Institute of Taiwan Studies at Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. This is World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. A candidate in Ecuador's forthcoming presidential election has been shot dead at a campaign rally. Fernando Villavicencio was a lawmaker and former journalist. He had campaigned against corruption and gangs. A state of emergency has been declared following the assassination. For more, we are now joined on the line by Zhang Shixue, professor and director of the Center for Latin American Studies at Shanghai University. Um, so, Professor Zhang, can you tell us more about Fernando Villavicencio and the campaign policies he advocated and maybe the... Um, potential motivations behind his assassination? Uh, well, uh, in, uh, in every country uh, in Latin America, the, these presidential uh, candidates will love to talk about everything, including fight against uh, crimes and uh, drug trafficking, all kinds of things. And Fernando is well known, uh, was, uh, was well known for his... Uh, um, efforts to uh, punish the so-called narco-trafficking uh, in uh, this uh, South American country, Ecuador. And uh, so uh, uh, these kind of uh, uh, organized crimes uh, 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 were very angry against him. Uh, well, this kind of thing is, uh, is not rare in Latin America. Uh, some of the um, drug traffickers would uh, go to the office of judges, uh, police um, uh, headquarters, uh, uh, as well as these uh, kind of presidential candidates. They will say, you want to bullet or you want to money. That means if you want to fight against me, I'm going to kill you. Okay, so this kind of story is quite uh, often uh, uh, in Latin America. We have heard of uh, this kind of stories in Colombia, Mexico, Bolivia, well, many, many countries. Yeah, but Ecuador has historically been a relatively safe and stable country in Latin America. Uh, so what has led to the recent rise in violence crime in the country and how serious is the situation now? Uh, Ecuador does not produce much uh, coke leaves, all these kind of things. But, you know, his geographical location is quite strange. Uh, uh, he, uh, this country is just located uh, between Peru uh, as well as uh, Colombia. And Peru and Colombia are well known for uh, drug trafficking. So, uh, geographically speaking, uh, Ecuador is not lucky. And in the past several years, uh, 
well, uh, Jack Chanakas love to, uh, uh, to to see Ecuador as the best place uh, to uh, traffic uh, drugs and all kinds of things. So, in a sense, uh, Ecuador is a victim of this kind of uh, drug trafficking in South America. Well, Vicencio's campaign platform, as you said, focused on cracking down crime and declaring a war on criminal economies. So how do you see his assassination influencing the broader conversation around crime prevention and, and law enforcement strategies in Ecuador? As a matter of fact, before his assassination, everyone in Latin America, as well as in the U.S., know that uh, this kind of organized uh, crimes um, based on uh, illegal drug trafficking is very popular uh, in this continent. And I was, uh, I was uh, in a pessimistic uh, way that, uh, well, the, government, uh, the governments in, uh, in, in many countries in South America cannot do anything at all. So I, I believe that uh, this kind of things will get worse and worse. Okay, but I mean, this is an indication that um, the violence has spread from criminal gangs to into the political sphere, right? And as we know, last month, the mayor of Manta, which is the country's third largest city, uh, was also murdered at a public event. So what what could this mean to political stability in the country? Of course, uh, political stability uh, in Ecuador uh, will become uh, more terrible. Uh, because the uh, presidential election is quite close, and uh, the current government cannot do anything at all. The only thing the government can do is to put more security uh, to protect uh, these, uh, pres- uh, these presidential uh, candidates. But uh, after this kind of election, who knows what will happen? Yes, yes. As you said, this comes against the backdrop of snap elections triggered by the dissolution of the Congress. How might this incident impact um, the political atmosphere leading up to the elections? Well, uh, I want to point out that uh, uh, the uh, illegal drug problem in Latin America is, is not the problem for Latin America only. As a matter of fact, I would point out that the root cause of the problem can be attributed to the failure of the United States to control the consumption of this kind of illegal drug. The demand is so huge, you know, from the U.S. And doing something like illegal drug trafficking can be very, very profitable, can be very uh, profitable, okay? So these organized crimes can make lots of money by uh, doing this kind of activity, okay? So the U.S. has done almost nothing except uh, implementing the so-called plan of Colombia. But this plan of Colombia has not dealt with this problem in that very, very effective way. So, uh, uh, so let me say it again that uh, in the future, I don't believe that uh, the prospects will be better. 
Okay, so is there anything that Ecuador or, or the international community could do to address these deeply rooted challenges to ensure long-term stability and security for 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 its citizens? No, I only only God can deal with this kind of problem. Well, I I, I so let me repeat that the U.S. should control its uh, consumption of illegal drugs. Okay, but the U.S. said. Supply is more important than demand. But as a matter of fact, in terms of this kind of illegal drugs, demand should be controlled first. If there is no demand, there will be no supply. So, so, so I would say the logic is very simple. The U.S. should understand if you do not control consumption of illegal drugs, American people will suffer and people in that America will suffer as well. Yes, thank you, uh, Dr. Jiang Shixue, Professor and Director of the Center for Latin American Studies at Shanghai University. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. An expert from South Africa says the rapidly growing BRICS bloc plays a critical role in strengthening the voice of developing countries in the Global South. Dr. David Monier, director of the Center for Africa-China Studies at the University of Johannesburg, made the remarks ahead of the annual BRICS summit, which will take place from August 22nd to 24th in South Africa. In an interview with my colleague Xia Wen, Monier says the expansion of BRICS Alternative financing and the development of the global south are some of the key issues to be discussed during the event. Let's take a listen. The BRICS summit will take place in less than two weeks in South Africa, and this year's summit will focus on BRICS and Africa. So what can we expect at the upcoming summit? What key issues will be discussed? There are a number of key issues that uh, BRICS 2023 will focus on. Um, Firstly, I think it is important to set the background that this BRICS summit is different from quite a number of other BRICS that had taken place before. It is taking place at a time of geopolitics. Uh, we see with the tensions uh, in Europe with Ukraine-Russia um, conflict. We also see the rise of trade wars um, uh, particularly in the United States, uh, going for China in terms of tariffs and uh, worsening, decoupling or de-risking, as they put it. Uh, we also see a lot of destabilization uh, in terms of building of uh, military blocks, particularly around South China Sea, with the rise of U.S. military alliances with a number of countries in a way of uh, uh, restraining, in their view, restraining or gaining against China uh, that we've seen taking place. I think for Africa, it is quite disturbing in the sense that uh, all the developments in the world it does not augur well for Africa's uh, development, particularly the lack of consensus within multilateral institutions uh, at United Nations whether on climate change or any other issue uh, affecting directly on the African continent. Mm -hmm. So it is in all these contexts 
that BRICS will focus uh, largely on issues that have a direct implication on the African continent. Uh, the need for development as set by United Nations, uh, the Millennium uh, Goals. I think uh, BRICS will play a critical role in terms of availing uh, alternative views, alternative financing in infrastructure, strengthening the voice of the Global South, uh, and the bulk of global south is on the African continent. Mm -hmm. So we're expecting a bulk of African countries attending. And all the talk about the expansion of BRICS itself, um, of which some African countries will be eligible, uh, particularly Algeria and Egypt, that has shown keen interest. But beyond the African countries, we also see emerging uh, markets particularly in Latin America, Argentina, also interested. Iran, Gulf states, uh, UAE, and Saudi Arabia. So all these countries are yes. quite critical, and BRICS will indeed deliberate on these issues and more. We know South Africa is cheering the summit this year. From your perspective, what does this mean for your country, and what priorities does it give to South Africa? For South Africa, it is important to be chairing BRICS Summit, even though it operates and is a member of BRICS at the level of a standalone. But South Africa strongly feels that it cannot advance its own interests at the expense of the entire African continent. And therefore, South Africa takes a cue uh, from um, the AU, and the AU has very clear uh, position on all issues that are going to be discussed. Mm -hmm. So I think for South Africa, it's an honor, uh, it's a privilege, and, and it understands that its own foreign policy agenda can be advanced through this important forum. And, mm -hmm. and this summit is quite critical. Russia, India, China, and Brazil are critical members in which South Africa operates at the global stage and has a number uh, of issues, uh, share a number of other platforms that are critical, not just BRICS, G20, and two members of BRICS, Russia and China, are members of the United Nations Security Council. So this is quite important on discussions of climate change, and therefore BRICS could also be seen as a platform in which the developing country, Global South, exchange notes and build consensus to have a common position mm -hmm. on matters dominated mainly by the Global North, uh, the industrialized countries. We have learned that so far, 23 countries have officially applied to become new BRICS members and over 40 nations have expressed their interests in joining the bloc. What do you think about the expansion of BRICS? Why do you think more and more countries, especially the developing countries, want to be part of this bloc? Um, BRICS is quite critical for these countries uh, on, a number, on a number of reasons. You have a sense of importance of consolidating their interests uh, there's a rise of um, uh, resource nationalism where countries are starting to be quite serious about their resources uh, when it comes to oil and the price of oil, uh, when it comes to the usage of the dollar 
that they need to trade beyond the dollar. They also want to use other currencies and therefore BRICS is a, is a platform to do with it. We also have seen an increase in United States and Western countries, blocking countries in terms of what we call sanctions or the abuse of global public goods uh, such as SWIFT with the war in Ukraine and a number of other issues that the global South disagrees with. And therefore, I think we're going to see the coalescing coming together of the global South, are strengthening multilateral institutions and ensure that there is fair trade and cooperation among themselves. So these are a number of reasons why uh, the global South is unhappy with the current global order and try to reconfigure the global order so that it benefits all. One of the objects of the BRICS summit this year is to strengthen economic cooperation among members. And this becomes especially important when the World Bank and the IMF have warned that one third of the global economy will be in recession this year. So what business opportunities or economic opportunities will BRICS offer to Africa as well as to the global south? I think Africa is open for business. There are a number of opportunities for a number of countries. Uh, through the AU, Africa has a vision of Agenda 2063, which is the core vision, the Africa that we want, in which Africa have stipulated areas in which they need cooperation with the developed countries and BRICS countries. In infrastructure development, the beneficiations of their resources and ensure that uh, tourism is key and therefore a uh, trade expansion of trade so the areas of cooperation are many and the demands in africa the demand for cooperation in those key areas is expanding so i think we're going to see a number of countries your saudi arabia your iran your china your india russia brazil all of them have interest in africa that's Dr. David Monia, director of the Center for Africa-China Studies at the University of Johannesburg, speaking with Xiaowen. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. China has announced the resumption of group tours to 78 more countries, including popular travel destinations such as Japan, the United States, and Australia. The announcement marks the third list of its kind, following approvals in January and March this year, which brings the total to 138 countries. China held the world's largest outbound tourism market in 2019 before the COVID-19 pandemic, with 169 million trips made that year. For more, we are now joined by Liu Zhiqin, Senior Fellow of Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies at Renmin University of China. Dr. Liu, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Um, so what are the key factors that have led to China's decision to resume outbound group tours, and what do you make of the timing of this announcement? Actually, there are many factors that have made this announcement so popular and welcomed by the global market. I should say that this such decision or announcement has been already waiting for a long time, especially in China as well as in the global tourist market. Many foreign countries ask the people in China how that China can 
really rebound the uh, tourists in outside and also invite more uh, travelers from outside. So this is a very important signal that send to the global market. Of course, this is uh, a uh, very important thing that uh, to show that China's confidence has already restored and come back to the market. We show that this is one of the major factors that uh, to attract more travelers and uh, to attract more Chinese travelers also abroad from both sides. So the second factor is that the China's economy is restored and recovered as scheduled. So the driving force is quite strong and the economic very resilience. So under such circumstances, I think this is the right time for Chinese government to make a new judgment, a new decision that to promote outbound group tourists. Okay, so what impact could this have on the tourism industry, both domestically and internationally? Actually, the the uh, impact for the global market is more stronger than expected, because as we know, that at the moment, the world market is still in weakness of recovery. They are waiting for the China's uh, support and the contribution to the world market, especially in the tourist uh, market, to be widely open. So in this way, that, that that's the impact on domestic and the global market are very strong, very positive. And the people are willing that to see more travelers from China and more travelers from abroad to China. On both sides, that can really contribute great uh, a contribution to the uh, economic recovery from both sides. This is also another we call the dual circulation. The mm-hmm. circulation not only goods but also people. People's circulation is more important than anything else. Yes, that's true. And and as we know, China's outbound tourism market was the largest in the world before the COVID pandemic. Um, so how do you expect this recent decision can help restore China's tourism industry to pre-pandemic levels? I think uh, that there's no any doubt on the difficulties for China's tourist market to become the again the, the largest one in the world, as as large or as bad as better than the before pandemic. Because before pandemic, China's outbound group tourists are the most active and positive and attractive to the people in the world. Nowadays, I think these people are really. Uh, welcomed by the world market, especially by the world tourist market. Many tourist organizations abroad, especially in Africa, in Southeast China, even in European countries, they already have prepared to welcome the Chinese travelers. So well, I think this uh, high tide, uh, a good time for the tourist revolution will come soon. Hmm. Okay, but as we know, the pandemic has accelerated changes in travel behaviors and preferences. So with the reintroduction of group tours, do you anticipate any shifts in the types of experiences and activities that Chinese tourists seek when traveling abroad? And how do you envision their spending patterns and preferences preferences evolving? Actually, there's such an impact are quite, uh, in my opinion, that they're not so negative because People always say that the pandemic has changed the people's behavior or influence or negative influence on the people's spending. But actually, I think in China, we can see in the past several months, the uh, holiday festival, we can see the 
type and the uh, style and also the pen spending enthusiasm in China has really greatly increased. That has nothing uh, changed fundamentally. The only thing changes that they have more enthusiasm. They have more uh, efforts that to make more spending. They try to uh, experience all things that they haven't got during the past three years. So this is a very uh, good uh, driving effort to boost the group of tourists abroad. This is a very important factor. Mm-hmm. Well, the announcement of resuming group tours underscores a sense of optimism and recovery. Uh, how do you envision this move contributing to a broader narrative of hope and resilience as the world continues to navigate the challenges of the pandemic and its aftermath? No, I think this is really like a, a good navigation for to, not only to the tourist industry, but also to the service industry all over the world, because the tourist industry is closely linked with the service industry, especially from also including the manufacturing sector. That can really fundamentally make a great changes that, that, that people will try to make more efforts to produce new products, to have more fashionable things, especially as we know that from Paris or uh, uh, French market, they are really trying to have more uh, product to attract the Chinese travelers. So this is really a good uh, uh, effort or good driving force to have more evolutionary uh, move to the new products, cosmetic, including healthcare, including. So we can see that the really great potential of the industrial revolution will take place in the near time. Mm-hmm. Okay, and b- by the way, what will be the most popular uh, destinations for Chinese outbound tourists? I think three, as before. The European countries, American and uh, Africa countries. These, these are uh, the most the more attractive goals and skills for the travelers, but also Southeast Asia is as a traditional uh, partner for Chinese tourists, but mainly I think many people... Uh, uh, more and more people are willing to see what happened in Europe, Europe and in America. So this is a quite important destination for the Chinese travelers, especially the new generation. They are really very eager, very uh, high enthusiasm to travel to see all this uh, new development in this area and these countries. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you, Dr. Liu Zhiqin, Senior Fellow of Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies at Renmin University of China. And that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. And for further discussion, you can follow us on Twitter at CGTN Radio. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.